His social media pseudonyms have changed over the years, from Politico Ben to BuzzFeed Ben to NYT Ben to Semaphore Ben. But over nearly two decades, his leading influence over 21st century journalism and media has stayed the same. Ben Smith has been a pioneer in the digital media space, innovating online journalism from its earliest stages. From Capitol Hill to national politics to culture and social trends, and now to a new venture called Semaphore. Our featured guest, Ben Smith, just moments away. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. Welcome back to Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, uh, we have talked a lot in the past, many things going on in the news, but why don't we talk to somebody who is making the news and molding how we see the news? Uh, Somebody uh, that's sort of behind the curtain, somebody who started off as a journalist, uh, moved into digital media, pioneered digital media, uh, and is now moving into the next phase of what we will know as digital media, not yet truly unveiled the details. Maybe we'll, we'll get a little sneak peek here uh, from our good friend, Ben Smith. I got to tell you, Rich, I'm really excited about this because as a young staffer, Ben Smith was one of those people that if he was calling, you knew he had something and you knew he was, he had, you know, there was no way to get around it, that he had it dialed in and he was writing a story and it was going to be uh, evocative and smart and take a different take on you know what was going on. So Ben Smith, former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News and now former media columnist at the New York Times, embarking on a new media venture called SEMA4. Prior to BuzzFeed, Smith was a senior political writer for Politico where he wrote a daily blog that Time Magazine named one of the five essential blogs in 2010. In 2008, Ben covered the Democratic presidential primary with a focus on Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. Before Politico, he was a columnist and blogger for the New York Daily News. Ben was also behind New York's first political blog, The Politicker, for the New York Observer. He also started the political site Room 8 after working as city hall bureau chief for the New York Sun. He's a Yale graduate, a Manhattan native, and thank God, a Brooklyn resident with his wife and three children. Ben Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Uh, well, I think Jared and I separately have known you for, for a very long time in, in different capacities. Uh, I've known you since... A combined 300 years. Yeah, that, that could be. That could be. Um, <laughs> s- since they had that uh, Passover Seder that went until the morning. Uh, <laughs> I, I think... No, for me, I think since Politico Ben. I think that that would probably be the persona I knew you at first when I was on Capitol Hill. Yeah. And one of the things I always found amazing at the time, not uncommon today, but very uncommon then, was how you sort of invented, without people knowing, or at least perfected the concept of doing DC-type journalism from somewhere other than DC. And I never really understood how you pulled that off back then. Well, there's this little technology called the internet where I was able to email people. And in particular, I guess it was AIM, but quickly transitioned to Gchat was sort of my main way of communicating with people. But um, that plus I had a 202 cell phone number and I would come down maybe once every couple of weeks and see people. But mostly, I mean, you know, Matt Drudge did it, does all right. Like I think you can, I mean, if you are very, very present sort of in people's minds on the internet, they will like, they don't really care where you are physically. So you've gone by a lot of social media handles over the years. There was Politico Ben, there was BuzzFeed Ben, NYT Ben, and now Ben Seema Observer. Ben, An Observer, ben right? Observer, Observer was the first one. 
in your own mind, it's terrible brand building, actually. I, <laughs> well, well, in your own mind, what's the difference between each one of them, and which one are you in the meta? Oh, I don't know. I don't that, know. That's an abstract. That's I love that question. question. I mean, I think that's Ben deep. Observer, my AIM handle, I still kind of identify with. I would say, which it actually was, had a little bit of a double entendre, you know, Ben Observer. Right, right. Ben Observer. Observer. For the New York Observer, Rich. Yeah, so you know, I, I haven't thought about AIM handles in a long time. It's so funny. I'd like, yeah, what was your AIM handle? What, what was yours, Rich? I don't want to tell you. That, that, that's fine. We're going to. I think uh, my, I think I, when I got to college, I decided that I needed a very professional looking AIM handle. And it was R Goldberg 83 to really professionalize myself <laughs> from, my, from my high school and grade school days. Incredible. All right. Not Ben Observer. I should have been Rich Observer. That would have. That yeah, would I think been. mine. Mine was Moose J H U. Yeah, I definitely. But, I definitely was corresponding on AIM with people who. I mean, I remember at some point somebody called Yum Peach Ice Cream started messaging <laughs> me about Barack Obama, and I was just sort of like and trashing, or not trashing, but in, in sort of in fairly clever ways, you know, point poking holes and things about Hillary Clinton, and it was like weeks before I realized that that was Bill Burton. Obama's press secretary. <laughs> and he wasn't like he was hiding it. He just never said, hey, it's Bill. He, and he was just, you know, why would I know that someone called Yum Peach Ice Cream was, was Barack Obama's press secretary? I mean, I, that, that, that was... I it mean, was these I, sort of transitional days on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I, I, I want to come back to Jared's questions. I think it's a, it's a deep question, but it's an interesting one. I mean, you had all these different phases of your career as it evolved represented in those handles. Is there one of those phases that is sort of the like real pivotal moment for you and how you've evolved in your thinking? Is is one of those handles who you are in your head going forward? Are you are you still Ben Observer no matter who you are, or you know was BuzzFeed Ben really who you are? Huh, that's funny. No, you know, I guess I always and probably to a degree that's maybe a little unusual, like kept some distance between my actual identity and my online identity. In in, in reality, I'm a dog. Um, the uh, and and I think I sort of you know thought of those channels as ways to reach people, but not as you know. And really, like I think I've never been really that interesting myself on the internet or tried to be that interesting. It's more like I've tried to break news. So rumor has it, you once interned for a major American Jewish publication. How did that experience and growing up in New York City shape how you approach reporting and running media outlets? Yeah, you know, I'd been I'd done a little bit of reporting in high school, and then I went to Yale and like w- went to the organizational meeting of the D- Yale Daily News, and all the kids were just like way too ambitious and intense for me, and I kind of was terrified and slipped out the door halfway, and did a little bit of student journalism, but then yeah, randomly was like one of twenty interns at the Forward in the summer of maybe '98, and. The, we sort of, you know, they didn't pay anybody really except when you wrote. And so, like, obviously the incentive was to write constantly. Um, and so I think I was pretty good at just, like, picking up assignments and writing them. And really, you know, and covering, you know, Jewish, Upper West Side Jewish politics, I just totally loved. And, like, the sort of, you know, the transparency, actually, of, of it wasn't, you know, if people understand it, people dealing with people who understood their own relationship with the media, like you weren't documenting them or certainly not kind of taking advantage of them or extracting things from them. They were totally aware and conscious of the sort of, you know, of of what they were trying to do with you. And actually the challenge was not to be used yourself. I guess something about that really was interesting to me. Um, And it was a race between Eric Schneiderman, 
and some others. As I recall, there was there were there was some kind of opposition research suggesting that Eric Schneiderman was not Jewish. Um, and maybe somebody found his baptismal certificate. I feel like that was the big that was the big story of the summer there. But he pulled it out. Oh wow. Well, wait, so Ben, so, and I'm going to set the stage here for Rich because Rich knows nothing about New York. God bless him. Um, you I, know, compete- I know about the bagels. The bagels. Right, right. But, but So in City Hall in New York, in the basement, there's a room called Room 9. And Room 9 is where all the reporters work. I'm sorry, not in the basement. On the first floor, Room 9, and then the annex is in the basement. Maybe and you don't know about New York. You know, I, you know, I yeah. try to stay away, yeah. actually. All but right, it, is, right. it is, A, the toughest place to compete for news, I think, in the world. But B, produced a lot of reporters who have gone on to really shape in the years since they were in Room 9. You have Jim Rutenberg, Maggie Haberman, yourself, um, you know, Glenn Thrush, people who were like in Room 9 covering DOT press conferences with the mayor uh, and are now shaping national events. How do you think working in and around Room 9 shaped you as a reporter? You know, I got to City Hall and... And because I was I was working for the New York Sun, which was this sort of weird new kind of conservative newspaper that had descended from the Jewish forward, um, got a desk not in the real press room, room nine, the kind of legendary high ceiling press room just to the right of the door as you walk in, but in this basement room, I think it was it was room four A, and it had like it was sort of filthy and it was where stuff that nobody knew what to do with went, and there were squirrels sometimes coming in and out. Um, but the other reporters in the basement were like, I mean, remember, newspapers had a lot. I mean, it's just still the end of the boom time of newspapers. So the New York Post had four or five reporters. The Daily News had four or five reporters. Newsday had three. And so it just so happened that I was downstairs with Newsdays. And, and they didn't, you know, they only had enough. They were starting to run out of space upstairs. And so like the most junior New York Post and Newsday reporters were down there. And that was uh, Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush. And so really my main experience was like, whoa, these city hall reporters are like unbelievably smart and aggressive and fun and good at their jobs. Like, I can't imagine how good the people upstairs are, you know, if these are the scrubs. But in fact, these, these you know, Maggie is like a generational talent. And I was just lucky to be sitting across from her. And I just learned an enormous amount from listening to her talk on the phone, but also, you know, really compete. They were friends, but also can, competed very, very intensely with you know, people who just turned out to be a couple of the really great reporting talents of the generation. And as somebody who was on the other end of some of those phone calls from both Room 9 and Room 4A, I would uh, I would second everything you just said, by the way. If you sort of fast forward now through the time you're at City Hall, into Politico, BuzzFeed, et cetera, take us through your journey in digital journalism. Uh, I think a lot of people know about the things you've done, um, but maybe from your perspective, sort of how has this digital media boom revolution changed over the last decade? Yeah, I mean, I think it's gone through a few cycles, you know, and, you know, part of the thing is that is that there's, you know, sort of, it, things start amateur and professionalized. I think you see that across the web and social media. Um, and things sort of often at their best start feeling like kind of a game and something really, really fun and social at which you could nobody could ever make any money and then grow up into something professional, but perhaps a bit less fun. But those creative early phases are, you know, incredibly exciting. And for me, you know, I had been 
I had been, you know, I, particularly during the 04 presidential campaign, when if you're a reporter for the New York Observer, you're writing once a week and you're desperately trying to sort of insert yourself into this national conversation. Like I did a piece about Howard Dean's, you know, life in New York, but he left when he was six, you know? So you're like looking for the local angle, but it's like about where he drank soda pop when he was five. <laughs> um, the, in like, so, you know, I mean, it's sort of limiting. And meanwhile, reading all these blogs, which were really, really important to that race, you know, Josh Marshall, Andrew Sullivan, kind of commenting on politics. And then there was this huge scandal around CBS and Dan Rather pushing a story that fell apart about, you know, secret and apparently forged documents relating to George W. Bush's National Guard service. And a set of blogs and little green footballs, if you recall, that one was central to it, really like tore apart um, the mainstream media on it. And at, a, at the same time, a, a number of liberal blogs were poking holes in the Bush administration's case for the war in Iraq. And it just, you could feel the amount of excitement there. And so when that race ended and I was sort of shoved back into local politics, it was like, oh, and there weren't any blogs. And so I just kind of figured I'd start one and th- and thought if I could get, you know, 100 readers who would be like the 100 people I tried to talk to every day, like my sources, basically, that would be a huge success. Um, and so started a blog at the New York Observer in like December of 2004. And that was the politicker. Yeah. And it was and it was just, you know, it was unbelievably easy. There was like a taking candy from a baby aspect to just how far behind the legacy media was like, you know, if there's a press conference at city hall at 11 AM, you could go to it then go get lunch and then put up an item at three. That was just like the mayor said this. And that would be the only source for anyone who was interested in what the mayor had said that day until the New York times put its edition Metro edition online at midnight, if they had bothered covering it. I mean, I remember sitting there as a young staffer hitting refresh to see what Ben had put on the politicker. And, and, and when you had your RSS reader, right, where you aggregated all your, your, uh, your blog feeds, and the, the Politicker was obviously the, the first one I only I had on there. And that was the, the blog of record in New York City politics for quite some time. And then Room 8 came about. Yeah. And so, and so I had all these commenters in, um, you know, who were really developed lives of their own and often were kind of abusive to one another. And, 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 and there was a level of like insane anonymous gossip from 250 Broadway, which was where all the city hall staffers were hanging out, happening in my comment section. Um, but there were these like very like persistent commenters with big voices. There was a guy called Gatemouth, yep. which was um, he's a Brooklyn kind of uh, political lawyer and a guy who I thought it was his fake name called Rock Hackshaw, which I thought was also a pseudonym, but is in fact his name and is a... a um, He's Trinidadian and sort of a perpetual Brooklyn, uh, Caribbean kind of political figure always running for office and kind of a like a reformer outsider type, you know, who's never going to beat the machine, but often has interesting things to say. And so there were all these voices. And I guess it was a moment I was like looking at Daily Coast and and basically was thinking a little of like, wow, could I quit and make this into a business? And another a, a guy who had worked in City Hall and I built this website on a platform called Drupal that was intended to be a sort of group blog for these people who'd come up in my comment section. But, but really like I kind of, I also thought they were maniacs and kind of wanted to not be their babysitter. And so started this blog called room eight, which was a reference to room nine where they could hang out and talk to each other. And it was like reasonably dynamic for a while, but also all of the stuff around like, people were really crazy and abusive and people really all knew each other. And you find yourself in this situation 
sometimes saying, calm down, it's just a blog item, sometimes saying like, you really can't say things like that about people's families. You know, I mean, like, and, and not really understanding what the rules were. And then at one point, somebody, an anonymous blogger was very, very vitriolically attacking people in, inside the Bronx political machine and saying they were corrupt, which they, by the way, they may well have been, but it was very personal. I look back and think like, huh, this was really like, you know, some junior secretary there and she was just get, he was just blasting her every day in a kind of over the top way and calling her a criminal. Um, and the Bronx district attorney sent us a subpoena demanding the identity of the writer. And we like freaked out on free speech grounds and hired a, a, a volunteer lawyer from public, public uh, from Ralph Nader's public interest group, this very brilliant guy named Paul Allen Levy, and, and beat them, and, which was pretty exciting for us, sort of on free speech grounds, which were justified, but it was also a little bit of a taste of like, like it was an insane situation and this anonymous person, I don't think I ever knew who they were, like probably shouldn't, it certainly wasn't, it was sort of stalking this with this random employee. And the notion that then the, the her friend, the Bronx district attorney would come and use the power of the law to crush him didn't seem right. But it also, in retospect, was a messier situation than I had realized, I think. Wow, that's quite the story. That's quite yeah, the story. And, and it's funny because I, I, the New York Times wrote about <laughs> I think it. It's like drop the mic kind of story. Yeah, the New York Times wrote about it, and I, and I sort of posed for the Times, standing out City Hall, looking really like aggrieved, and um, like I was trying to make like a, my best kind of victim face, and uh, but like you know, but ready to fight the machine. And um, whenever anything, I, whenever I would do anything for the years and years, like when I was announced that I went to BuzzFeed, they would use this photo of me just looking like righteously <laughs> aggrieved outside City Hall. <laughs> That is that is very funny, and people remember the revolution of BuzzFeed. I mean, like, that's I mean, I know you for for Politico. Jared knows you for New York. I think most people know you for BuzzFeed uh, and the revolution that that was. I mean, looking back on that now, having moved on, left it in good hands. I mean, what? How did that sort of change everything? The way we see news, think about news, think about the media. Um, let's see, I think, you know, BuzzFeed, and it was really like, again, I think I was sort of just happened to be sort of, of a generation where we were sort of swimming in these currents. And I could feel in 20, sorry, 2009, with I think the healthcare fight, that a lot of the action that had moved from, um, um, that, that had moved from, to, to the blogs, and the sort of intensity with which you were sitting there refreshing a blog, for instance, all of that sort of relocated to Twitter. And I could, you could if I was blog, like, and I could see it in my traffic. Oh, it didn't crash; it just sort of plateaued. And I could see it in, um, but I could really see it in like my sources and the crazy commenters who'd been driving me nuts, and the politicians I was covering all moved over to Twitter, and the blog had become kind of a repository for stuff that was traveling around on Twitter. And what I really wanted was to see a scoop go viral on Twitter, which is very exciting. And so when Jonah Peretti approached me in 2011 and said, "You know, we want to build a news like a news operation for the social web," which was not a term I'd ever heard before, but he kind of explained his vision of a world in which people. The first thing people did when they opened their computer was not open your website, but open Facebook.com or Twitter.com. And he was like, that's the future. And soon it'll be on mobile, which to me was like, what? That's crazy talk. Um, but it made sense with my experience. And so 
because of the way he thought about the world at BuzzFeed, we were able, when I started on the news side there, they'd already been playing a lot on Facebook and figuring out what people shared on Facebook. But I was just like, all right, let's just act like Twitter is the front page of our website. Twitter's the only thing that matters. And your job is to do things that go viral on Twitter. If a story's already on Twitter, I don't want to see it. Everything's got to be new, which then put a lot of pressure, but like pretty fun pressure on reporters to do original work. Um, the, you know, the world almost immediately started getting more complicated because we, because we were successful, people started coming to their, our, to our site and there really wasn't anything there other than like random unconnected political stories and, you know, lists of cats, which were great. Cat photos. Cat, cat photos. photos. Yeah. yeah. So Ben, we argue about this a lot in my house, by the way. Um, and I'm not going to tell you which side I take about it, uh, which side Hildy takes, but is the advent of citizen journalism uh, in Twitter, in all the other mediums that are out there. It's obviously democratized news in a way that maybe hasn't been out there before because editors and organizations don't necessarily have a total say in what goes viral. But is it a net positive or a net negative for our democracy? I know that that's a pretty pretty heady one. But. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously been a huge threat to every institution in the world. And I don't think journalism is particularly different from anything else here, you know, I mean, to, you know, everybody from television networks to politicians to businesses, you know, suddenly felt the sort of this new challenge, people could kind of see inside the workings and demystify these institutions, which I think was a big problem for the media, because we would pretend we were better than we were, um, or doing something sort of special when it really was just kind of messy, hard work. Um, I think, you know, certainly I think like the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are sort of meaningless institutions in the face of social media. Um, so I don't I mean, I, I, and I think, you know, it's certainly been unbelievably destabilizing, you know, and, and I think some of the de the most inspiring versions of that destabilization, like the Arab Spring, were pretty quickly, you know, stamped out. Um, and I and I, but I think, you know, and you had these obviously these pretty weak establishments that are sort of crumbled under the pressure of this disruption. I think it's like not totally clear. <laughs> I would say, I would say the answer is too soon to say, basically, on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but I think sometimes, I mean, you know, it's easy to sort of sink into thinking it's a terrible thing. And that, you know, if only we could go back to the days when people respected the media and respected the government and basically left us alone to do whatever we wanted. But then if you, I mean, the obvious thing that happened, the last, the last major thing that happened when we all, when everybody respected the media and respected the government was the war in Iraq. And I think like, if you go back and think like, imagine if, you know, when Rumsfeld is having holding press conferences saying like the situation is basically under control in Baghdad, if you had a bunch of Iraqis live streaming and showing you like, this is obvious nonsense. I'm standing next to the museum and rioters are going in and out. I think that would have been pretty powerful. Like, I think that a lot of the mistakes the Bush administration made would have been much harder if they had had to contend with more, if that kind of Washington consensus had had less power to shape how people saw the situation in, in the Middle East. Sort of a similar question, because obviously the flip side of it is sort of the quote unquote fake news element that can emerge very quickly via unconfirmed sources, people feeling like I'm losing the story, I got to get ahead of this, I got to move to, I saw something on Twitter, and you have bad press reporting all of a sudden potentially based on videos that have been manipulated, stories that have come out, somebody who's an influencer retweeted something 
you thought it was credible. How do you guard against that? I know this is this is a big, big question in the Facebook, social media front and free speech and all that. But, you know, from a journalism perspective, how, how do you guard against that? Or is it not possible anymore? Um, I mean, I actually think that, cons- there, you know, that, that it's been this moment where of a, like very, this very kind of disorienting moment where, um, you know, where there, and there was a period where you would see something that looked like a real publication on the internet and think, oh, this is probably some real publication I haven't heard of. And now I think even if you're a 12 year old or even if you're, you know, or somebody in your 70s, you mostly get that you, you have to be more careful with your source with sources. And I think that the kind of like, quote unquote, fake news where people are just like actually being tricked by scammers. I mean, every medium has a lot of scams. Like, obviously, the medium with the most scams right now is the telephone. It's not a, um, you know, like 50% of all telephone, <laughs> my, my telephone use is people trying to scam me. So it's not like a unique thing to the internet. We but, have your, um, car, your car warranty is about to expire. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so but, but those phone calls can't go viral, you know, that, that's... Right, that's no, no, no. But I think that, but I think that, I actually think that the notion of just sort of the internet as a vector for sort of really just sort of straightforwardly bad information that's spreading and is, is I think, I think the solution is, and it's real that audiences are getting more sophisticated about that stuff. I think there's this other thing and people in journalism and politics with college degrees like to talk about it as information, but I don't think that the main reason that people share, you know, shared, say, you know, the lie about Obama having been born in Kenya was, it wasn't like an informational issue. They hadn't like made an error. They weren't looking to be corrected. It was politics. It was an insult. It was, you know, a smear. It was something to say about your enemy. Um, And I don't think you're going to be, I don't think that like more careful fact checking is going to prevent that kind of politics. Like I I don't really see that as an informational issue. Question about the era of celebrity journalists, right? Um, because there have always been celebrity journalists, but it seems like you know who they are now. You 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 care about who the writers are. You care about who the folks are on TV, and it's not just about breaking the news. Um, there's lots of charges leveled back and forth about people holding back information uh, in order to you know monetize on the back end. Like, what do you make of all that? Do you think it's it's just uh, file under the haters going to hate, or is it a real trend? Um, that that we need to be concerned about in the media as an as an industry. Well, I just think it's a fact that these institutions have been weakened relative to individuals. I mean, both absolutely and relative to individuals. I think you know the rise of social media and people able to voice their criticisms and notice stuff that the media gets wrong. It's not like the media wasn't making mistakes and being ideological and bumbling and biased before in some, you know, in, in some cases before it's just now it's all much more on display. Like we were always idiots. It's just on display now and people can attack it. So that's one thing. Um, and then I mean, but that, that's really like, that's really true. Like if you just think about for like a, just the most basic stuff, like a crime story, like there's a bad crime in Indianapolis. My first gig was covering cops in Indianapolis. And then you do spend the day running around knocking on doors, trying to figure out who did it and who the victim was. And it, early in the day, you have the wrong names. You brought them knock on the wrong doors. You get, you know, you're, it's hard to figure out. And you don't, as a journalist, have special magic skills. You're just a normal person running around trying to figure something out. And so if you ask me at noon what I know, it could all be wrong. But by 6 p.m., maybe I figured it out. And by the time it's in the paper the next morning, it's like a reasonable approximation of reality. 
the thing is now all that bumbling around that I was doing during the day is in public display. And people are like, oh my God, these people are total idiots. They don't know any more than we do. The thing is, that's always been true. It's just that now it's on display. Um, and I think the, all journalists can do is just be trans like, yes, we've always, we don't have any special magic powers that you don't. We're just trying to figure stuff out. Um, which I think is painful because I think journalists like to have this special mystified status. Um, and so I think as part of this, and it is, again, it's a broader erosion of institutions. And if you think about the relationship of politicians, individual politicians to parties, you see the same trend. Um, or athletes to sports teams, although there have always been star athletes, but um, just in terms of the balance of power between them. So I think, I think in terms of what we're trying to build at Semaphore now, you know, I think we want to just sort of acknowledge the reality that people connect more and audiences connect more with individuals than with a sort of faceless brand and lean into that and give great journalists, you know, an opportunity to speak really directly to an audience um, and not try to, not try to sort of aggressively come in between that and keep journalists in their box. I think the other side of that is that you can do it with a level of honesty and transparency where you're not saying, you know, the view of the New York Times is that Donald Trump is a racist. Like, it's just, who wants, who asks these big institutions to have these views, you know? Um, and they're not the Catholic Church. They don't need to hand down encyclicals. But you, I am interested in what Maggie Haberman thinks. She knows a lot, right? She's an expert. I am interested in what Wes Lowry thinks. I am interested in what... David Leonhardt thinks, like all sorts of people. And they disagree with each other, and I disagree with them sometimes. But I'm interested in having even disagreements with a smart journalist who knows what they're talking about. I'm made uncomfortable when an institution takes a sort of a, an official posture. Like, I don't even know what to do with that. I have a couple of follow-up questions, because this is really interesting, I think. It's getting to the core of where we are right now in media and where it's going. Um, my first is, is more connected to what Jared asked and a follow-up on what you, what you just said. I don't begrudge like a reporter being a celebrity in some way and having a novel or a book and, you know, like Woodward has perfected that over many, many years. A lot of people have followed in that sort of stature on the domestic front. Um, Tom Friedman, you know, comes to mind on the foreign policy front. Um, I, you're right. I don't think that that's new. And TV news especially has always been personality driven, right? The talent is poll tested, focus group, people tune in because they like the anchor, they like a certain reporter. Uh, I remember in journalism school, we, you know, we all went to watch broadcast news, right? We're a broadcast journalism majors. And so we watched broadcast news and that famous cutaway scene, right? With the tear and all that. So, you know, not a new thing, right? To sort of make it about yourself, you know, so that the audience likes you. But I feel like that's a different level than when you're at a press conference and and you're going to be reporting a story and the story really sort of now becomes about your questioning it's sort of like i want the attention on me for the for the package tonight not necessarily on what the story actually is of what's going on you know that sort of thing i think may be viewed by some as corrosive what how do you view that i mean i don't think that's i mean i think particularly tv reporters grandstanding um, is not like a brand new. I mean, I remember, um, I remember Rich Marsha Kramer in the in the the city hall press room. That, yeah, like, that was her mo. And from, I think, yeah. I mean, I think, in part of it is that these TV reporters kind of know instinctively that to build trust with their audience, their audience needs to know who they are. And so, I think you can do it well or badly, but I think that the audience basically wants to know who who they're getting their news from. And so, you know, you should 
you shouldn't shy away from that. My second follow-up question is more on this issue of bias and objectivity coming to the surface and just being sort of owned or acknowledged or lean into um, by many. And, and, I, and I'm not sure if that's sort of where you're going in sort of your case of sort of the next, next phase here of we want to hear from journalists of their views um, unvarnished. In journalism school, I, I had an ethics and journalism freshman year professor. He's now passed on. An amazing guy, former journalist. Um, and like the indoctrination into objectivity and you know putting away your bias. I mean, the hypotheticals we went through of whether you could even vote in a primary election so that somebody could see your your voting history. You know, uh, where is the line that somebody could know what your political thinking is? That seems like way like you know, 20 years plus ago in, in the rearview mirror. And we've seen just went on at the Washington Post in the last uh, couple of weeks. We've seen went on the New York Times before that. Uh, did we just stop teaching bias and objectivity, you know, in, issues in journalism school? Or, are we in an age where we're almost back to the beginning of the republic, where everybody just wants their media that agrees with them? Rich, it's and, like we're reading the Torah. We got to go to the end to come back to the beginning. I, I'm just wondering, like, where where is this where is this going? Like, what are we embracing the bias of reporters and just saying that that's just life? And like, I want to know your bias. I want to know your opinion. Or, well, like, I mean, I, I'm trying to hire people who you know, who aren't that committed to an outcome. Like, I think a lot, I mean, there are certainly journalists, I mean, I think there are going to be different outlets doing it different ways. And sometimes, actually, I think it's it, it, sometimes you see somebody who unearths really amazing information has a really, really clear take on it. But ultimately, you do want to know what was what Edwards, even if you don't agree with Glenn Greenwald, that like the NSA's, you know, sort of a surveillance of Americans is incredibly sinister, and you think it's good for national security. Like you don't do the you know what Glenn Greenwald got there was pretty amazing and interesting as a, you know for everybody I think right the Washington um, Free Break breaks news Huffington Post broke news even yeah and, and you know, you know and, 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 and Seymour Hersh breaks news right like, yeah and you can say like I don't like I disagree with this person I don't like how they're doing it but it's interesting um, I mean I I think you can also have though essentially I mean there are a lot of journalists who are not don't really aren't that ideological who are interested in reality interested in figuring out what's going on telling you about it. You know, if you spend 10 or 15 years doing that, you do then know a lot. And I don't think you want to tell journalists we're not interested in what you have to say about it. And some, so, you know, that's not always true because actually like one thing journalism doesn't require is being all that smart. And so there are great reporters who like, actually, when you start talking to them about what they think everything means, you're like, no, no, stop. I'm actually, turns out I'm not interested in that. Go back to <laughs> ferreting out information. But, but but there are a lot of reporters, like I, the people I'm trying to hire certainly are people where it's like, you know what, like this person's an expert. They have an, a sort of an, a, an analysis of the facts they've found that's pretty interesting. But they also know the difference between a fact and their analysis. And, they're, and they don't mind, you know, that you would disagree with the latter. And in fact, if you can prove there, if you have some new piece of information that proves them wrong, they're delighted because it's another story. Ben, you're, you know, longtime observer and participator in the cutting edge of media. It's like you're an oracle, you know, uh, you were in blogs before they were really a thing. Um, you you made BuzzFeed, uh, you know, really what it was in the news space. What is the next big thing in media that we should be watching for? Uh, you know, trend-wise? Um, I mean, I do think it's figuring out this sort of way to connect more directly with journalists, among other among other things. I mean, it's a, and, and, you know, which, which really means big changes to the relationship between uh, the sort of employment relationship 
between the talent relationship between employers and the and, and journalists, um, as well as meaning something different for the journalism. I think. I mean, yeah, I think there are lots of lots of changes in the industry. I mean, certainly, yes, I think that, you know, I think the social, the sort of notion, the era in which social media dominated journalism is over, in which the tail wagged the dog. I think that's basically over. And and there's, and there's a big focus on it, more having a more direct connection with your audience, which email is sort of the most literal embodiment of. Ben, last question before we get to our lightning round. This is obviously the Jewish Insiders podcast, and I think our listeners would be very interested in your Jewish connection, your upbringing, and how that's impacted your work uh, and career. You know, I'm I'm like many of us. I'm not I'm not like I'm a sort of a bad Jew, um, but it was you know went to Bnei Jeshurun growing up, uh, a conservative sort of sort of politically left-wing conservative synagogue on the Upper West Side of Manhattan at a bar mitzvah. Um, and then, you know, I think I'm, you know, you know, a typical, not massively observant Jew who goes to the high holidays and things like that, but, and, and uh, but, but wouldn't, wouldn't, don't want to make big claims about it. Are there any times in your career you can look back on and, and see any way in which, your Jewish background um, impacted uh, what you were doing a story or, 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 or some sort of funny event that ever, that ever happened? Huh. Um, you know, I mean, I think, I, let's see, a couple of things. I mean, I've always covered Jewish politics ever since the forward. And so, um, you know, and, and New York politics is a, a big chunk of New York politics is Jewish politics. And often increasingly, it's, it's, it's very sort of from Jewish politics. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I have lots of friends who are very engaged in aspects of, you know, um, sort of ultra-Orthodox politics in Brooklyn in particular and find it, you know, super interesting and kind of a, obviously kind of growing part of, of American politics. I would say to the degree that, like, it affected me, it's actually that I grew up in a mixed household. My mom's Jewish. My father is a quite devout Christian. And so I think it kind of, it, it sort of puts you in a position where you're, you're sort of characterologically inclined to think that people who come from quite, who believe very different things don't like absolutely have to hate each other. Like, like Rich and I. <laughs> <laughs> are, are, you, are, you, are you the bad Jew, Jared? I'm, I'm no, no, no. I was talking politically oh. that you're oh. yeah, you, I, I tell, like, yeah. like Hannity and Colmes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, know that, that, you know, yes, you know, that'd be fine. That'd be fine. And, and if net worth uh, ever comes out that way, I think that'd be fine as well. Um, <laughs> All right, Ben, we're going to go to our lightning round where we're going to ask you just a handful of questions to get a little bit of a sense uh, more of who you are as a person. Um, and we do appreciate you taking time with us today. Uh, Rich, why don't you go ahead and start us off? All right. Uh, is there a book you have recently read that you loved and would recommend? Um, I've recently read and you could yeah. say galleys of Maggie Haberman's book if that's it. I'm or, sure. Or my, it I'm be, sure. Or, or it could simply be a blog. It could yeah, be like, yeah, no, I, yeah. I'm fixated on this God, blog. So, right is now. it so lame of me just to repeat what you just said? But that's absolutely true. I read galleys of Maggie's book on a flight last week. Oh, really? And I think it's, and I just think it's spectacular. <laughs> and it's not at all like other political books I've read. It's really a kind of definitive biography that. Because I think, like, for a lot of people who've covered Donald Trump, there's this underlying question of just like. Why is he like that? That you, that people have not really tried to answer. Just like what, what he's so weird. Like how do you get to be like that person? And I think he's often treated as sort of a celebrity or an object of hero worship or a monster. But rarely are there attempts to just be like, what is what is that guy's deal? And Maggie right. really does that, and it's just totally fascinating. 
Well, Maggie Haberman, former Jewish Insider Limited Liability Podcast guest. I'm sure Maggie would <laughs> love to hear you say that. Um, please, right. tell, please tell her. Please pass this on to her. Well, we're, we're yes, we're going to make sure we, we let her know all the nice things you said about her. All right, okay, my, for our listeners who haven't listened, go back. There, were, there are a lot of fireworks in that. We asked. A lot yeah, of yeah, yeah. That was in our early days. Our early days right. here on Jewish. All right. Ben, favorite Brooklyn restaurant? Um, place called Purple Yam. It's a Filipino place on Cortellu Road. Just spectacular. Everybody should go. Okay. My neck of the woods. Very nice. All right, Rich. Favorite Yiddish phrase or word? And profanity is totally allowed here. Huh. You know, I mean, I always, I always liked it. It was so, it was very um, gratifying when I was at the New York Observer that this actually made it into a headline. But I always thought Alta Cocker was an amazing, uh, amazing <laughs> yeah, phrase. Yeah, that's pretty solid. And, 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 and when I was at The Observer, Peter Kaplan had a headline. Because he was just very into headlines that nobody would understand. And so, and it was, you know, it was in newspapers where there'd be like four or five headlines stacked, stacked on top of each other. And there was a headline that was about the DA Robert Morgenthau. And the headline was, is Morgie Cyborgie? And then one of the decks was the DA is an AK. I, I, <laughs> and like, Rich, like how many people got that? Nobody got that. I, I was amazed that that made it into print. Rich, for for your background, Robert Morgenthau was DA in well into his nineties, uh, and was the mentor to lots of prominent people who ended up in different jobs in New York City politics. Um, who were all AUSA, ADAs in, uh, in the Manhattan DA's office. All right, Ben, last... Uh, by, by, by the way, national prominence because of his uh, U.S. attorney role for Southern District of New York. So I am very well right, aware right. of... Right, okay, uh, okay. Well, you know, I, Rich, okay. you don't speak New York, no, see, so... I'm just, I, I, yeah, there are a lot of people I get... I, so know, I watched, uh, whatever, the People's Court. I got Ed Koch, I got Okay, it. okay. Uh, all right, Ben, last, last uh, lightning round question. Who was your toughest Room 9 competitor? Oh, Maggie Haberman, Glenn Thrush. Ben Smith, longtime chronicler of the media landscape in America. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. And if I may, I want to plug my new thing. Which is yeah, cool. absolutely. Your, plug your away. Listeners should go. We don't know. We, we don't want to ask you questions you, you can't answer. So I can't um, yeah, answer that many of them. But if if your readers do want answers, they should go to semaphore dot com and put in their email addresses, and we'll t- give them all the answers. I'm so, doing it right now. As, we can't as, tell as you we what's rolling. coming. There will be something coming. It's new. It'll be a it's, great, it's a great global news organization launching later this year. And Ben, when, well, we'll tell you what. We would love to have you back on when it launches to talk more about it. And we would awesome. love to come on as personalities with a lot of interest and, yeah. and opinions <laughs> and analysis. <laughs> Fabulous. It's great to talk to you guys. Right. Ben, thanks so right. much. Take care. If you like this show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.